Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. Welcome back to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 148, The Importance of Sagebrush Habitat with Whit Fosberg. Now, in this episode, I'm talking with Whit about sagebrush habitat. Whit is the president and CEO of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, an organization working to guarantee all Americans quality places to hunt and fish. TRCP unites and amplifies their partners' voices to advance America's legacy of conservation, habitat, and access. While we're talking, Witt's going to share the work TRCP has done over the past 20 years, what the biggest legislative wins were for 2022, and where the Recovering America's Wildlife Act currently stands. The meat of the episode includes his thoughts on the importance of sagebrush habitat, what threats are looming, and things being done to conserve the ecosystem in the West. The conversation wraps up with Witt's outlook on the impact the North American Grasslands Conservation Act could have. All right, welcome back, everyone. And uh, as you heard in the intro, our guest on the line today uh, is Whit Fosberg of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Program, or I'm sorry, Partnership. Uh, so, Whit, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Jason? Oh, I'm. Anytime I get to talk about conservation, and people that are longtime listeners have heard me say this many, many times, or honestly, probably sick of me saying it. If I'm talking about conservation, I am in a good mood. Uh, so. I've known about TRCP or the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership for a number of years. Um, I've been a member on and off as I cycle through the all kinds of different conservation groups out there. And um, so I have a general understanding of what it is. But for listeners that might not have heard of TRCP, what is the organization about? So TRCP was created in 2002 to bring all the hunting and fishing conservation groups together to speak on a common voice on issues that were really too big for any one group. Um, agricultural policy, energy policy, public land policy, access, marine fisheries, issues like that. And it was created by a fellow named Jim Range. And Jim had been Howard Baker's chief of staff when Baker had majority leader of the Senate back in the 1980s. He and Senator Baker were both from rural Tennessee, you know, good old-fashioned hunting and fishing, old-time Republican conservationists. And Jim became very frustrated with how ineffective he felt the hunting and fishing community had become in Washington. And you go back to the Roosevelt days, it was really the hunting and fishing community that created the modern conservation system and the North American model of wildlife conservation. And, um, you know, Boone and Crockett Club was the first to what we consider the modern conservation groups created in 1887 by Theodore Roosevelt and some of his friends, ostensibly to stop the market hunting and to start preserving habitats or disappearing quickly. And then when he became president, he set aside uh, 230 million acres of 
land for the public to enjoy, to hunt and fish, to hike, to bird watch, to do whatever. And really that was not just out of altruism, it was the fact that he credited his time in those wild spaces in North Dakota with making him the man he became. And he wanted to make sure that all Americans had that opportunity to get outside and to challenge themselves or at least to experience nature. And he envisioned a system very different than we had in Europe at that time, which was still have, which was largely fish and wildlife owned by the, you know, the landed gentry. And it was hunting and fishing were sports of the elite and not the common people. And Roosevelt wanted something different here. And then beginning in the early 1900s, we put in place, you know, we ended the market hunting, we put in place the early environmental laws. You think about the groups of those time, it was the Wildlife Society, the Isaac Walton League, Wildlife Management Institute, you know, Boone and Crockett, uh, Wildlife, National Wildlife Federation in the 1930s, you know, which all of which were not just concerned about any one species, but about conservation broadly. And then in the 1930s, you had the Ducks Unlimited was created, and that was really the first of the species groups. And DU did an amazing you know, job of not only you know, creating things like the duck stamp and the Pittman-Robertson excise tax to pay for conservation, but then it you know, rolled up its sleeves and started restoring and protecting wetlands around the country. And that model was followed by a trout limited in the 50s, then Elk Foundation in the 80s, and Pheasants Forever, the Turkey Federation. I mean, you name it. Whatever game species there is out there, there are one, two, three, ten different NGOs that care about that species and have done great work bringing them back. Because you go back to those early 1900s, you know, elk were probably 10% of the population they are today. You know, bison were functionally extinct. Uh, white-tailed deer were rare. Um, you know, so really ducks, ducks were considered, there was a real fear that a lot of duck species were going to go extinct back in the 1930s. So, I mean, all of these groups did amazing work and continue to do amazing work, you know, putting dollars on the ground, restoring and protecting habitat. But in Jim Range's mind, what had been suffered was that collective eye on federal policy that underlay everything. It's how our 640 million acres of public lands are managed. It's the, you know, the science capacity we have in this country. It's conservation funding. You know, it's a lot of those things. It's incentives for landowners to do the right thing through the farm bill. And, you know, so he decided he was going to bring, create a conservation group that brought all those groups back together to speak in a common voice on these big issues. And that was 2002. And then 2009, Jim unexpectedly died. And uh, so I came in 2010. And today we have an, uh, basically under our umbrella, there are 62 different groups. And it's very much the, uh, the you know, it's a broad coalition. You range from Ducks Unlimited and Trout Unlimited and Pheasants Forever, the Turkey Federation, Mule Deer Foundation, National Deer Association to, you know, the Outdoor Industry Association, um, which is the retailer, basically the you know, the trade association for REI, you know, Eastern Mountain Sports, Bass Pro, all the rest. It's the Hispanic Access Foundation. It's the Minority Outdoor Alliance. It's the AFL-CIO because 70% of their 12 million members hunt and fish. Uh, it's the land trust community. So what we do is uh, we're not a trade association. Nobody pays any dues. But what we do ask them to do is come together, roll up their sleeves, and work on issues that we you know, care about and, uh, you know, present that united front. So, you know, that is the uh, long-winded, you know, description of what we do. Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, all those groups uh, that are working together under your your organization's name, you know, they do great work for the individual species or uh, the stakeholders that they represent. But that, 
Well, that's a good thing. That sort of fragments hunters and, and fishermen and outdoor enthusiasts because they don't, it's not one collective voice. It's all these smaller groups. And for your group to be able to pull everyone together and say, it's not just, you know, our 30,000 members or these, you know, 100,000 members, it's all the members from these organizations. Um, it has a little, probably has a little more weight in Washington, right? When you have larger numbers. Absolutely. And, it, you know, listen, we need both. We need the groups that are actually doing the work on the ground because um, that's where our conservation happens. But we also need to make sure that we're, you know, federal, folks on policy that directly impacts what we're doing. I mean, Jim Range used to like to use the analogy of the farm bill. And he'd see all the ag groups go into a room at the beginning of every five-year farm bill negotiation and come out locked into a position and stay with that position the entire way through. You see the conservation groups go into a room, come out with a position as soon as the going got tough. You know, they scatter like a covey of quail and try to cut the best side deal they could for their career. And, uh, you know, just, you know, it just drove Jim crazy, understandably. You know, but that we have, you know, 50 plus million people in this country that hunt and fish. And we tend to be politically active. We tend to be that sensible center uh, that, you know, really gets stuff done. We tend to vote. And uh, he wanted to make sure that, you know, we were represented the way we ought to be represented, the way we have been historically in federal policy. You think about going back in the old days, you know, Congress is largely rural America. They knew about hunting and fishing. They did it. Today, it's not like that anymore. Uh, you have mostly it's an urban Congress, even the folks from more rural areas, a lot of them that don't hunt and fish, they don't understand it. You know, we can't just assume that our interests are going to be taken care of because they always have been. And that was, you know, Jim's vision back in 2002. And I think it's more true today than ever. And we've had a great, you know, run. And I think that the, you know, the model has been vindicated. So with that sort of collective voice that you're able to provide and focusing on, you know, legislative issues, what was the biggest win of 2022? Like what was the biggest conservation impact that TRCP and these other organizations were able to pull together and you feel like, yeah, this is this is the one we can hang our hat on. So I think it would have to be the climate provisions that Congress passed in 2002 as a part of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, it was very clear several years ago that, you know, climate was going to be where the action was happening on conservation policy. And listen, if you're a hunter and angler, you see what's happening. You see your water is getting warmer. You see... You know, the home ranges of fish in the ocean changing dramatically. You see elk coming out of the mountains later. You see changed migration patterns. You see moose practically going extinct in various places. It's not getting cold enough to kill the ticks. So you know, we, our community has seen it, and we were engaged in climate back in the early 2000s. But when the issue became so political, a lot of our groups would tend to be pretty conservative, just you know, sort of go and hid in the closet because they just didn't want to be talking politics. They'd much rather fix up a wetland or fix up a stream. And, uh, you know, it took us out of the conversation and it kept that conversation being polarized. So several years ago, we decided to bring, you know, we started with the hunting groups, them together and talk about not only the science of what was happening, but also the solutions. And I think the scientists say that generally 20% of the solutions for a change in climate are nature-based. I mean, it's trees, it's grass, it's water. That's the stuff that soaks carbon out of the atmosphere. And by the way, it's great for fish and wildlife and hunting and fishing. So what we did was we you know, pulled folks together for a few days, looked at the science, talked about how you message this stuff to your membership. 
and then really came out with the you know the beginning of a platform on climate from the sporting community. Then we convened our broader policy council, our you know those sixty-two different groups, about forty of which came together physically, and hammered out over several days and what ended up being about a seven-page statement that's on our website trsp.org that folks can look at the talk things that you need to do in terms of. You know, better managed forests, more land and conservation in farm country, restored and protected wetlands, coastal barriers, using nature and not just, you know, making bigger levees. And, you know, that became, we sent that to Congress, you know, back in 2019, I believe. A uh, big story in the Washington Post about the basically hunting and fishing community coming together on climate. And if you looked what passed in, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, the climate provisions, uh, it could have been taken almost verbatim from what that statement you know, was released to Congress. Uh, we had called for a doubling of the conservation title of the Farm Bill, uh, which is currently about a, you know, $6 billion a year in the Farm Bill for conservation on private land. It's the biggest conservation program in this country. And uh, after the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, that has doubled. Uh, you looked at natural infrastructure, and when we had the, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed, it had a heavy emphasis on natural infrastructure. So instead of building, building bigger seawalls, invest in barrier islands, coastal wetlands, mangrove swamps, things like that, that act as natural barriers to rising sea levels. Invest in greenways and wetlands along our rivers, not just big, bigger levees. Uh, better managed forests to deal with you know, forest fires and to prevent them. Plus we need that, that myriad forest types out there. We need early successional, late successional, in between. And you look at the eastern United States right now, where we have this sort of sea of sameness of middle-aged stands, and you see what the impact has been on rough grouse and other species. So I think that, you know, the community came together, and they don't need to necessarily talk about climate, but by putting their shoulder to the wheel on this all together, we were able to get Oh, 40 plus billion dollars, you know, for natural climate solutions in that bill. And that's a game changer. Now, now our the challenge is going to be to keep that money and to get it out on the ground and to make sure that we're not you know, wasting it away. Yeah, it's one of those, uh, while climate might sort of be the the umbrella of everything, you know, for these groups to be able to sell it more as how it can benefit what their constituents are looking for right like yeah, they're saying you're talking about things like your know, soil health and better managed forests and more wetlands and which means wetlands. you know more ducks or more deer Absolutely. or healthier deer yeah. yeah so you know being able to structure it in the right way that that makes a ton of sense to sort of you know kill two birds with one stone type deal yeah uh, and really i think it helped create you know some of that safe space for more conservative folks to come in and be for dealing with climate because it's not just about, you know, sort of cap and trade or, you know, reducing, you know, oil and gas in favor of wind and solar, all of which have implications. It's, uh, this is something our community knows really well and are experts at, and, you know, it's very comfortable for them. You know, one of the things that um, I was, one of the bills that I was very excited about when I heard that it was being proposed was Recovering America's Wildlife Act. And I thought, you know, this is the kind of bill that everyone can benefit from, because not only are we trying to keep animals, you know, and fish and uh, wildlife from getting on the endangered species uh, list, but the sort of like fringe benefits of all these little habitat things that state agencies are going to be able to do are also going to help, you know, 
the hunters and the fishermen and it like there just there was other than you know if, i guess if you're like a fiscal kind of conservative that doesn't want to spend money there's really no downside to this bill um what's going on with rawa uh, you know it didn't make it through in 2022 so does that mean that it's dead or is it just renew the push oh i mean i'll never say something's dead um especially if it's good but uh just a little bit more background many years ago the state's put together what they call the state wildlife action plans that laid out the need they have for managing species other than those species that they already have money to manage, which are really the game species, thanks for our community. Licenses that we pay, you know, the excise taxes that we pay, you know, that funds the majority of state fishing game conservation agencies. Now they use some of that money for broader habitat stuff that benefits multiple species and that's great. But it's very clear that they don't have the resources they need to keep the, you, know, you name it, the meadow larks, you know, the whatever the species might be that is not a game species from you know blinking out. And so, you know, the collective cost of what the needs by the states was about 1.3 trillion or billion dollars a year, and uh, that became the backbone of the Recovering America's Wildlife Act that would create, you know, basically dedicated permanent funding for the states to work on this. And the idea being to the extent that you can, you know, a little bit of money right now to prevent a species from dipping into that threatened or endangered level where then you're in triage mode and it's way more expensive, ultimately as a smart thing to do, not just ecologically, but fiscally. And then, you know, part of the challenge was in the way Congress works these days is you're going to do something like that that costs money. You have to come with what they know as calls a pay for. So how are you going to pay for it? And there was originally there have been a variety of ideas that were tagged to the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which sort of kept shifting. And that's been part of the problem. And the most recent one that thought, we thought we had was, you know, how you deal with basically taxes on cryptocurrency and you know, sort of instant you know, profits from crypto trading. And the main crypto groups were fine with our, quote, pay for. Uh, some of the shadier groups were not. Um, but, you know, again, I'm not an expert in crypto, so I'm not going to go very deep into that one. But the pay for ended up being a problem at the end of the year. While technically the bill was paid for, uh, Mitch McConnell, who is a Republican leader in the Senate, didn't want any provisions in the bill that passed at the end of the year, the omnibus bill that basically were new spending, even if they were paid for. And so it fell off the, you know, fell off the wagon at that point. Now, there are a couple of things that this points to. One is that Congress doesn't work the way it used to work which is you have a good bill, you have majority support for it, you have bipartisan support, you bring it up for a vote. You know, that just doesn't happen. Uh, you only have a few bills, you know, every year that really are vehicles for other stuff. And there is everybody in town competing to get their favorite bills, you know, tacked onto that. And, you know, sometimes you get it. I mean, for example, we had a chronic wasting disease bill that we got onto this one. Um, which didn't spend money at authorized spending for 70 million a year for the states for surveillance testing. And then it, you know half of that for research at the feds, USDA and USGS. Um, so we were able to get some stuff in there and that was good, but we were not able to get RAWA, Recovering America's Wildlife Act, because it was just considered a, a big chunk of change. And it, it was guaranteed funding, which uh, you know Senator McConnell didn't want. And we're gonna make another run on it this year. The problem is you have to basically, it all starts again, because that was the end of the Congress and the Republican champion for that, Roy Blunt from Missouri, retired. And so now, you know, Martin Heinrich, who's a Democratic lead, who's phenomenal, you know, he will probably, you know, probably Senator Tillis from uh, North Carolina will be the Republican leads this time. And we'll 
go back and try to do it the old fashioned way, getting a lot of support, getting it through committee, getting it on the floor, getting a vote, getting it passed. Um, but there always needs to be a certain amount of noise to get it done. And uh, so, you know, Pheasants Forever, National Wildlife Federation, Ducks Unlimited, the other groups have really been helping us drive this. Uh, you're going to see them continuing to make a lot of noise about RAWA because it's really that and the Farm Bill are the two big priorities in the current Congress. Yeah, and even some of the state agencies are even starting to bring up how much they would really appreciate this bill being passed um, to be able to manage all the species that they're responsible for uh, a little bit easier. So uh, you might even get a couple more, you know, voices out there to try to rally some support. Well, that's, you know, we had, I think in the Senate, we had, I think, 14 Republicans, 14 Democrats on the, as co-sponsors on the bill, which is a very bipartisan effort in this sort of partisan times. Um, and, you know, the State Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, which is the you know, basically the trade association for all the state fish and wildlife agencies out there, uh, have been huge proponents of this bill because you know they're the ones that get saddled with the obligation of bringing these species back when it's too late. You know, Fish and Wildlife Service announces something gets on the list for being an endangered species, and you know they're not out necessarily be the ones out there trying to bring it back. It's up to those biologists in the states are now in charge of doing something and being the bad guy, you know, with the private landowners. So it's a crummy system. I mean, we need an Endangered Species Act. We need to have the hammer out there, but it should be an absolute last resort. And right now, you know, there's just not enough proactive work going on before that to keep these species from hitting that edge. All right, Wet. That's all great information. That's all great stuff. But now I want to talk about something that I know probably zero about. Okay. I want to talk about sagebrush. It's something that... Um, you know, I, I've read about it a little bit. I hear about it here and there, and it really intrigues me what I've read, but I feel like I know absolutely nothing. Um, but I know that there, from what I've read, that there's an issue with, you know, the area that sagebrush grows in and, and the habitat that it provides for other animals and things like that. And there's some concern there. So, um, I, let's just start with you know that the simplest question: What is sagebrush? So the sagebrush steppe ecosystem, as they like to call it, you know, covers about 165 million acres in 11 western states, all, all the way up into Canada. And a lot of folks, you know, this is those areas like in the Red Desert in Wyoming. You drive through, and it just looks the same for a very long time, and it's not terribly interesting, you know, unless you get there in the right light or you're hunting sage grass or something like that. And, uh, but, you know, as time has gone by, we've started to realize how important ecologically you know, the sagebrush ecosystem is. Um, I got, we got into it really through sage grouse, uh, which is an iconic game species that used to be extremely prevalent in the West and has down now to a fraction of its numbers to the point where a lot of the states are talking about ending hunting of sage grouse. And it's not because these species have been overhunted, it's because of been degradation in that sagebrush steppe ecosystem. And that's coming from a variety of things. One, invasive species that come in and things like cheatgrass, and then you have fire that follow those. And all of a sudden, you know, that ecosystem is not meant to deal with that. Uh, you have a lot of, you know, development that's going through it. Things like oil and gas or renewables or solar arrays that are put out here in the middle of nowhere because there's a lot of wind, there's a lot of sun. In a lot of places, there's a lot of oil and gas, but that, you know, fragments the habitat. And we've seen what that does with species like mule deer and pronghorn. 
that have complex migration routes that they have great fealty to. And when those, you know, when you have a you know six-lane interstate that goes through someplace, you know, it either stops the migration or it's gonna you know force these animals to you know go down there and play frogger in the middle of the road. And uh, that's not good for the animals, it's not good for people. And then you have a thing like a sage grouse, which is you know evolved ecologically to avoid high things because this main you know, predator were raptors. And so if it sees an oil derrick or a telephone pole or a wind farm you know, someplace, it's gonna go and move somewhere else because it knows that those tall things are basically calling the eagles, calling the hawks, and that's what you'll go after them. And you know, it's not just sage, you know, it's not just you know, the sage grouse. There are 300, I think 350 different species that depend on that same ecosystem. Wait, uh, hold on a second. I I got to clarify here. So sage grouse know to you know they they know their main predator are raptors. So they're trying to avoid areas where raptors are, which makes complete sense. Yep. In in my understanding, oil and gas, renewable energy, housing developments, anything like that, it was causing a decline in sage grouse because of habitat. There, like there's less less sagebrush, right? You're yep. saying that it's not just that, that even if, you know, let's say a um, wind farm has a not overly huge footprint. Okay? Let's say that magically they can just place, you know, those wind turbines and they don't disrupt the whole lot of area. Those sage girls are still going to move out of the surrounding area just because they know that raptors like to sit at high places. Correct. So yeah, you, had, you, you described it exactly right because you have the actual direct loss of physical habitat. But then you also have, you know, anytime you have a highway going, for example, you're probably going to have utility lines that run alongside it. And those are opportunities for raptors. You have oil and gas derricks, you have a wind farm, you have anything like that out there. You know, those birds are going to move, you know, I can't remember the exact distance, but it's way further than you'd think. And, uh, you know, so you have this combination of you know, direct development, then indirect development and fragmentation. And it pushes them into smaller and smaller areas. And so that's, you know, that's the real threat. And that's, you know, that's why species have suffered. And that's why all of a sudden people are now starting to talk about, you know, the sagegrass, sagebrush ecosystem as such a critical, as such an endangered ecosystem out there. So when you're, when you're talking about the sagebrush ecosystem, like I'm, a, I'm an East Coast guy, whenever... Yeah. Whenever I think of ecosystem, like I'm thinking of, you know, some grasses that are growing, um, some shrubs that are growing, some trees. You mentioned, you know, driving through Wyoming, through sagebrush country, it's a sea of same. Th that's an ecosystem in itself of, it's just oh, yeah. basically just that sagebrush. Absolutely. And it's as far as the eye can see and it's flat and, but there's a lot more happening out there than you think. Yeah, so let let's get into that. Like, what is it? Like I said, I'm an East Coast guy. Like, I everything in an ecosystem in my mind. Like, there's multiple parts; they all play a part. If there's just, if it looks like just one plant out there, right? Like one brush, one bush, basically, it's growing. Like, how is it that sagebrush can support, you know, multiple species and be an ecosystem in and of itself? What are those other things that are happening out there? Yeah, so there's it's really it's not as monolithic as it looks like. If you go on, you wander through it, you're going to find you know, little wet areas that have grasses. And those are the areas that typically the sage grass will go and do their you know, sort of famous mating dances. 
You'll have old growth sagebrush that they like to hide under. You'll have younger sagebrush that you know they may eat or eat bugs off of that is different. So there is diversity out there. It's just not as visible. And, uh, you know, but there's been a whole, you know, essentially, you know, series of species, 350 of them, that have evolved to live in this, what looks like just a sea of sagebrush. And in fact, the uh, National Geographic did a really good film a few years ago called The Sagebrush Sea that talks about this and that talks about, you know, sort of the threat, but also how cool it is, this sort of unappreciated ecosystem out there. And so you have, you know, hope, but in going back, if you have, for example, there's a lot of grazing out in these areas too. And if you have too many cows in it, you know, then they're going to pound those little wet areas and the grasses. Um, if you're developing water around there, all of a sudden these seeps are not going to seep anymore. You know, so there's a lot of different threats. It's not just as simple as utility lines and, you know, wind farms and oil and gas yards and roads. So there's a lot of other stuff going on too. But, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, we're, we're losing sagebrush, we're losing the species that depend upon it. So you mentioned that, you know, cheatgrass, you know, is an invasive species that will sort of take over and then fire um, being detrimental to the sagebrush. How does the sagebrush grow? Like, is it seeds that are then deposited or is it rhizomes that, you know, is it like sending right, out getting, plants on the ground? Past my, you're getting past <laughs> my pay grade here. Um, yeah, there's, again, I am not a scientist in this stuff. I'm a political hack that tries to figure out what we can do here to protect it. Uh, you ought to get on Ed Arnett, who is the CEO of the Wildlife Society and who's knowledgeable about sagebrush, sagebrush and sage grouse as anybody out there. He was our chief scientist before he took over the Wildlife Society. But Ed can you know, talk very poetic about this for long periods of time. He can go through all about how sage grouse. You know, this, this is what happens to me, right? Like I get a topic in my head and I'm like, oh, that'd be a great episode. And then I end up going down a rabbit hole and I keep going further and further and more information. Um, and then my family and friends start just hammering me with like, please stop talking about it. It's been three months and this is the only thing that you've talked about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll nip that in the bud <laughs> with my own ignorance. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned that it's uh, so it's aware, like we as a people, as a nation, like we're aware that we need this sagebrush ecosystem, that it's threatened. Yep. What are we doing as a nation? What are we doing as your organization? Like what's being done to try to save or conserve sagebrush in the West? So there's a ton going on. And in fact, this is a place where the Endangered Species Act has worked the way it's supposed to work because you know the, the pressure of a listing, which would have covered 165 million acres in 11 states, you know, brought everybody together to come up with a plan to avoid that. And uh, so you have the cattle industry, you have oil and gas industry, you have others. There's been a tremendous amount of money provided with private landowners to change you know, fencing. Fences kill a lot of you well, know, sagebrush grass and, too. And that listing threaten of listing listing is that you're referring to is for sage grouse, right? Like Correct. it was, yep. ve it was very sage grouse were very close to being listed. But well, you it, could, I mean, a lot of people argue they ought to be listed and, because numbers are still declining. But and the reason why they haven't been to this point is, as you're alluding to, like a bunch of groups said, "Hey, let's try to help here." So federal government said, "Ah, oh, you know what? We'll we'll wait to list." Yeah. I mean, let's give this a chance. You had all the Western states, almost all of which were Republican governors saying, hey, we can do this. You had the cattle industry, the oil and gas industry saying we could do this. And there's been a lot of creative stuff done. And a lot of, in a lot of ways, it's about just, you know, you can have development, but just have to do it smart. Because like I said, not all of the sagebrush sea out there is the same. 
There are some that's way more ecologically productive for a species like a sage grouse than others. So let's cite the wind farm, you know, over in that non-productive area and not in the heart of, you know, sage grouse country. Um, if we think about doing oil and gas development, you know, because of things like the you know, technologies of horizontal drilling, you know, we can put a one pad and then dial, you know, drill horizontally for six miles. And uh, you don't have to have, you know, a pad every quarter mile. And, you know, it's that sort of being smart about how we do development is, you know, a big part of this too. But you also have to make sure we're not going out and doing new oil and gas leases in critical habitats, you know, things like that. And we also have to make a real effort and get rid of those, you know, invasive species like cheatgrass. And, uh, you know, that is very manual labor of going in there and getting that stuff out. It may involve chemicals, um, but fire is a huge threat to a lot of the sagebrush ecosystem. And cheatgrass gets in there, it looks beautiful and green early on, and then it turns super dry and it becomes a conduit for massive fires. And so we need to get that off the ecosystem. And that's not going to happen by, you know, a government agent not doing it. It's going to be with groups like Pheasants Forever or Mule Deer Foundation or others that get their hands dirty and work with landowners to do this or work on federal lands or work with the feds to do it or the states. So I think that, you know, there's been a lot of progress made. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that, you know, the sage grouse populations have been, they fluctuate a lot having to do with just the weather. I mean, if you have a good moisture year, you can have a lot more, you know, sage grouse the next year. If you have a crappy, if you have a multi-year drought, you're going to have lower numbers. And that's probably been true for the extent that we've had sage grouse on the ecosystem. But because of the climate, it gets exacerbated. And you have much more severe droughts or severe, you know, you know, rains or, you know, snow events or whatever it might be. But at the same time, you know, I think that you, you have to be something of an optimist to see everybody who's come together to try to solve this problem. And, you know, the federal government has put a lot of resources into it, something called the Sagegrass Initiative at Department of Agriculture. You know, they got a cool website. It really talks about the investments they've made in, with private landowners using farm bill programs to, you know, do the right thing, changing fencing, restoring, you know, wet areas, you're getting rid of invasives, you name it. Yeah, and I just, I really want to reiterate here, you, you mentioned the hammer of an ESA listing. You know, if the sage grouse would have been listed, um, that would have meant absolutely no development over all those acres of sage grouse, basically. Yeah, I mean, right? there would have been, you know, some sort of have to be some sort of critical habitat designation to pick the best areas. But what it does is it makes the process acrimonious from the beginning. And uh, you're going to have a lot of, you know, the, you know, that sort of thought about, you know, shoot, shovel and shut up. And you don't want to have sage grouse on your property because it's going to be trouble. And, you know, that is, you know, just not conducive. We have to have the private, you know, in, you know, landowner as a part of the solution. We have to have oil and gas part of the solution and we can do it. It's just a matter of, you know, sort of changing the way we've done things forever and having the resources to make it from people's worth their while. But it's not just about the sage grouse because all those other species are going to benefit if we do it right for the sage grouse. I mean, pronghorn numbers, you know, follow largely, you know, the sage grouse numbers. All right. So now let's get a little bit closer back into your wheelhouse uh, in talking about a new, new to me, at least, uh, legislative bill um, that's being put out there, the uh, North American Grasslands Conservation Act. Um, what is it and why is this an important bill to focus on this year? 
So, you know, we've just been talking about, you know, the sagebrush, but really grasslands and sagebrush, you know, face a lot of the same issues. Uh, they're underappreciated ecosystems that have incredible, you know, wildlife you know, value, and they're declining at a rapid rate. And if you look at something like the, uh, you know, grasslands across the country and some of the species that depend on them, um, so according to, you know, the stats we put together behind this bill that we're going to talk about in a minute, 73% of our nation's, you know, grasslands, and we by that we mean things like, you know, tall grass, mixed grass, short grass prairies, you know, sagebrush steppe, coastal and savanna grasslands have disappeared. And, uh, you know, the species have followed the same path. I mean, what bobwhite quail are down about 85% in the last 50 years. Uh, meadowlark, I grew up in the Northeast. We had a lot of meadowlarks around. I'm 60 years old. And during my lifetime, uh, we've lost three quarters of our meadowlarks. So it's not just a game issue. I mean, it is an ecosystem issue. And uh, you know, science has really come a long way on this and really taught us about how important these ecosystems are and just how threatened they are. And so and the threats range from conversion to development, conversion to row crops, fire, invasive species like cheatgrass, um, you know, so and just you know, a change in climate. So what we did was with Pheasants Forever, uh, National Wildlife Federation, Ducks Unlimited, others, is put together a bill, you know, called the, as you mentioned, the North American Grasslands, Grasslands Conservation Act, uh, that would mirror the what we call NACA or the North American Wetlands Conservation Act that was passed back in the 1980s to conserve wetlands, which were you know declining at a very rapid rate then too. And uh, there's nothing regulatory about this bill. It is incentive based. So the way that the North American Wetlands Conservation Act works, it was created in 1989, and it has uh, you know basically gives grants, and it gives grants to uh, for all sorts of projects. And since it was created back then, there have gone been about 3,000 projects in the U.S., Canada, Mexico. Uh, all the federal dollars have been, you know, $2 billion of federal funds have been matched by nearly $4 billion in other funds. And we've impacted about 31 million acres of wetlands and associated uplands. And uh, it has really helped stem the decline in waterfowl species in this country. Now, we still have a lot of work to do with wetlands, particularly in places like the prairie potholes, but it has been a huge success and has done it without any sort of, you know, laws to you know, punish people for doing the wrong thing is totally incentive-based. And so based on the success of the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, we drafted the North American Grasslands Conservation Act to do the same thing and uh, give grants, ma matching grants to do projects around North America, uh, that would benefit and bring back um, grassland habitats. So historically, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, conservation has been seen as a bipartisan issue, right? Things that both Democrats and Republicans can get behind. And um, as you mentioned, in partisan times, it seems like the bills that get passed are the ones that are conservation based um, because each side can sort of sell it to their constituents. Um, um is this act also bipartisan? You know, is this is this bill bipartisan in support? Well, we certainly hope it will be. And if it's not, it's not going to pass. So 
the bill that was dropped in, you know, last Congress uh, was dropped in by Senator Ron Wyden, a Democrat from Oregon, and a couple other Democrats. It was really a marker bill. Get it in there, see what people thought about it, you know, make suggestions. Yeah, but this year, you know, if we're going to pass this bill, it's going to have to be bipartisan. And the way we did it with RAWA, which may not be the best example since we didn't pass it, is you you always try to get, you know, basically, you know, one Democrat for one Republican as co-sponsors on the bill. And uh, I think over time, you know, I think we will get that here. I mean, there are still a lot of things that need to be decided. Um, there are some folks that money goes through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which has done a great job on NACA. Uh, some folks on the grassland side would love to see that go through USDA that has more of a history of dealing with the farming community. Um, yeah, we'd obviously prefer to see a state fish and wildlife that really understands ecosystems and wildlife. Um, but, the, you know, issues like that can get worked out over time. Um, but this one should be bipartisan. I hope it will be bipartisan. And, you know, certainly the groups that are pushing it, it's not just the hunting and fishing groups, it's the American Bird Conservatory, it's Audubon, it's you know, a very mixed you know, group that are trying to get this thing passed. So for listeners out there that are interested in, in learning about this act, you know, this bill, where can they find more information about it? Um, you can go onto our website, but then there's a, we have a dedicated website for the North American the Grasslands Conservation Act called uh, actforgrasslands.org. And uh, if you go to that, you'll see all the groups, there are logos at the top that are supporting this and description of the bill itself and the problem of disappearing grasslands. And would it be safe to say that if you check out that website, you're like, yeah, I want to support this this bill, uh, that those same listeners should reach out to their, you know, senators and representatives and say, hey, when this bill comes about, I want you to support it. Or, hey, I want you to sign on to this bill. Yeah. And I think that we need to get it reintroduced. So as as of the you know, end of December, when the last Congress ended, um, everything that was didn't get passed to pass eventually is going to have to be reintroduced. And so at some point this spring, you know, we will get this reintroduced. And uh, then we will have an actual bill number that people can lobby around. Uh, but in the short term, you know, go ahead and just read what the description of the bill is. Uh, go on our website, go on the Pheasants Forever website, go on the National Wildlife Federation website, you know, go to actforgrasslands.org and learn about it and ask questions. And uh, then you know, come back and be ready to be an advocate for it when we give you the signal. Yeah. And, you know, for all the listeners out there that um, have been advocating in the past, you may need to figure out who you need to contact now because uh, we just had you know midterm elections and there's been some changeover. Um, I know there has been for me. So this is actually a really good time to allow your representative or senator that's new to understand that constituents find you know, conservation to be an important issue and, you know, introduce yourself to, if you're one of the first people, you're, it's more likely they're going to remember your name and, um, you know, what it is that you support. Yeah. And just, uh, you know, anybody that, you know, hasn't done so already, just sign up. It's free on our website, you know, as a, as a quote member or supporter, and uh, you'll get weekly updates of all the issues that are happening in Congress. And, uh, and you'll get an alert when this, you know, starts to move and you'll get instruction about, you know, how to contact your member, and who your member is and, you know, sample letters and, you know, talking points and all the rest. 
Well, Whit, thanks for joining me today and talking about sagebrush and Rawa and the Grasslands Conservation Act. I mean, it, you know, a lot of people tend to shut down a little bit when it comes to politics stuff, but I feel like this is the kind of thing that um, we can talk about politics without being jaded, without feeling so partisan. It's something that can benefit everyone. So thanks for coming on and talking about it. Oh, well, thank you. And and listen, this is still the area you talked about it, where Republicans, Democrats can actually come together and get stuff done. You know, we've seen that, you know, I would say the last decade has been the most substantial for conservation in this country since the 1970s in the modern environmental era. And uh, it's because we managed to keep these issues from getting partisan. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot to disagree on in Washington, but hunting, fishing, fish and wildlife should not be among those. And that'll do it for today's episode. Big thank you to all of you listening. And of course, a big thank to Wit for coming on to talk about the work the TRCP does and just everything involved with, with sagebrush habitat. You know, the, there's so much going on in the West that is detrimental to sagebrush habitat. And this habitat is very much a important resource to so many species of wildlife in the West, you know, put this as just another thing that, that needs to be the focus of conservation efforts. I do want to applaud, you know, the public and private entities, you know, saying like, hey, let's try to fix this ourselves. Um, it, it's not, you know, that we can't drill for gas and oil. It's, you know, not that we can't have housing developments. Uh, we can do those things, but let's do them responsibly and let's put them in places that aren't going to have, you know, this huge impact on the ecosystem. And, you know, basically we just need more of that, right? The, there'll be less government intervention if we just think with common sense and stop going uh, in the direction of, you know, money and greed and I'm just out to make a buck. So if we could all just work together on these things, we could definitely make it a whole lot easier to get conservation done properly. Until next time, get outside, take someone with you, and as always, stay wild.